I mean, I'm not here to be the representative of the Republican Party. I'm here to be the representative for Alaskan people. That's the moderate GOP senator from Alaska, Lisa Murkowski, speaking about her current re-election campaign. Back in 2010, she won re-election to the U.S. Senate as a write-in candidate. Now in 2022, Murkowski's the only one of the seven GOP senators who voted to convict Donald Trump after the January 6th insurrection who's up for re-election this year. As a result, Trump visited Anchorage recently to rally the MAGA faithful against her. This is your precious chance to dump the horrific rhino senator, Lisa Murkowski, who's worse than a Democrat. Does that pose a huge challenge to Murkowski's re-election? It might. But then again, Alaska's different in every way possible in its size, its distance from Washington, and its politics. Only 24% of Alaskan voters are registered Republican, 13% registered Democrats, and 58%, highest in the nation, registered nonpartisan. I saw what happens when you work across party lines. As an independent, there are no party lines. So it's a matter of working as Alaskans, like you do in local government. And I really mean that. And that's former Alaska Governor Bill Walker, the last independent governor in the U.S. from 2014 to 2018, but maybe the next one as well. He's running again this year as an independent and polling competitively against the incumbent GOP governor, Mike Dunleavy. Alaska has long been distinctive in its politics and elected officials. Now in 2022, Alaska is different right down to the way it votes, as explained here by the Anchorage Daily News and the Juneau Public Television Station, KTOO. Alaska has a new election system this year, and you probably have some questions about it. In the past, you might have been asked which ballot you want when you go into the polling place. This year, there's only one ballot. Having passed ballot measure two in 2020, Alaskans go to the polls this month to vote in an open, unified primary with all candidates from all parties on a single list. Then, in November's general election, voters will be asked to rank the top four choices that emerge from that primary. It's the first time in the nation that this method of final four voting will take place. It combines open primaries with ranked choice voting. I'm Robert Pease, and this is The Purple Principle, a podcast about the perils of polarization visiting our least partisan state this episode with the help of reporter and producer Dylan Nichols. Dylan, great to have you with us. Happy to be here, Rob. And to share a bit of insight into Alaska, it's a really fascinating place. And you've done three very different interviews for this episode, including with Alaska Public Media's Liz Ruskin on this first-in-the-nation Final Four voting system. Yeah, we'll be hearing from Liz about Final Four voting and the fact that it may not be as moderating a force as we thought, like in the race for Alaska's single U.S. House seat. So, but I don't hear anybody saying, oh, make me your number two. Baggage is going after Palin and calling her a quitter because she was governor and, and left before her term was finished. So there's been a bit of nastiness between the two candidates that are most similar to each other. You also spoke to a member of the Alaskan House of Representatives, Calvin Schrage, an independent running for re-election also on a Final Four voting ballot. Calvin's a first-term independent House member from Anchorage. He'll tell us about the challenges of legislating and campaigning as an independent. I was getting lots of advice and lots of encouragement that you need to pick a party, you need to have that base of supporters if you're going to run a successful campaign. And when it came to that decision, I just said, 
you know, I've never been a part of a party. I don't want to subscribe or pigeonhole myself into a certain set of values. It's not about what one party or the other thinks. It's about what's right for my state and my community. And we're going to get a much wider angle viewpoint on Alaskan society and political culture. Yes, that's from Brendan Jones, the Alaska-based novelist. People may have seen his column in the New York Times this spring on the indiness of Alaskans and why that could work to the advantage of candidates like Senator Murkowski or Bill Walker or Calvin Schrage, for that matter. So much going on in Alaska this election with major battles for senator, governor, and their single U.S. House seat. Let's kick things off with Dylan's question for Brendan Jones on whether it's just plain easier to talk politics in much less partisan Alaska. I would say yes. I would say absolutely. Um, you know, it's people aren't Republicans or Democrats. They're fishing buddies or they're, you know, volunteer firemen. or And of course that happens in small towns across America, but on the island where I live, you know, you can't run off. You can't run off to a suburb because if you run off, you'll get eaten by a bear. That's just what happens because it's just outside of town. And that's just kind of like the situation on the island. So I think being reasonable is a survival tactic. And of course, in Alaska, survival is a huge thing. This idea of self-reliance and extreme, you know, circumstances and being reasonable is right up there with, you know, learning how to light a fire, making sure you have enough calories to survive. We spoke a while ago with Governor Bill Walker, and he was talking about what he saw in terms of the independent, unaffiliated voter population in Alaska. I think it is uh, growing. I think that of that independent, nonpartisan, I think it's it's right-leaning, quite honestly. The, I don't know the exact percentages. I would guess it's a right-leaning uh, group. You know, I think that, uh, you know, Ted Stevens, Senator Stevens said it well when he would say the, the hell is with politics, just do what's best for Alaska. That's kind of like the Alaska that that's how we, you know, progress over the years. Do you see Alaska sort of resisting the trend of polarization that's happening in the lower 48? Do you see what Bill Walker was predicting, a growth in independence that's been continued and sustained? I do. I do very much see that. And um, it's pleasing to hear Governor Walker say that, especially, you know, as an independent governor of, of a state. I mean, listen, 57% of people in the state are independents. It's more than half. And, you know, people really pride themselves on calling their own shots. And, and I would make the argument that that's much more in keeping with the American style of, of government, you know, as created by you know, Washington and Madison and Adams and this idea of Adams worrying that, you know, the division of America, the Republic and the two great parties is the worst thing that could ever happen. I think that that's 100% true. And I, I do think that Alaska, if there is any alternative, um, Alaska and, and the way we're doing voting um, provides a really good alternative. You wrote a piece in June for the New York Times. And if I can quote you in that, you said, Alaska has a rich tradition of rewarding candidates who stand up to powerful figures like Mr. Trump. Can you talk a little bit about this history and whether or not that might ring true in this election cycle? Yeah, I mean, listen, the the state takes great pride in thinking independently and uh, kind of doing its own thing and bucking trends that are established in the lower 48. I mean, let's just move right on to Lisa Murkowski. I mean, she was appointed to the state by her father in a move that was really 
um, created a lot of rancor throughout the state. Um, but then she really proved herself in 2010 with this crazy, totally insane write-in candidacy. She lost in the Republican primary to uh, this kind of Sarah Palin protege, this Tea Party um, candidate named Joe Miller. And, um, and the GOP, the national GOP, stepped away from her very decidedly. And initially she was going to, if I recall correctly, she was going to run as a libertarian but the libertarian, had to, he said that he wouldn't step off the ballot. And so after some thinking, after talking with a bunch of folks, she said, you know, screw it. I'm going to run as a, as a write-in candidate. And she had her, um, her constituency, her voters just write in her name. And lo and behold, this won her the election. And I think it did, it did two things. It really established her as a bona fide candidate instead of just being appointed by her father in 2002 gave her a lot of confidence um and i think it really validated her in the eyes of alaskans and it also just really um made her believe that she was okay bucking the gop i think there's a a a certain amount of bitterness that that remains does the new open primary system and ranked choice voting system that alaska has adopted uh, since Alaska Ballot Measure 2, which we did a previous episode on, was passed by Alaskan voters, does that new system give candidates like Murkowski, who buck the party line and buck some of the most powerful personalities in the party, a better chance of getting Alaskan support? I think so. You know, I would be, um, I would be pretty concerned that she wouldn't win this election were it not for ranked choice. Yeah, I think that it gives her a shot because it's creating consensus for somebody instead of just saying, you know, first person past the goalposts. I think a lot of people are going to settle for Lisa, and that's largely because of the personal relationships she's built over the years. Chewbacca has largely been criticized for being a carpetbagger, which, you know, I kind of think she is. She just arrived in the state, took a quick job, and now is running. I mean, that was always the idea that she would run. Uh, Murkowski, on the other hand, has consistently done, I believe, what she thinks is right for the state. That's Alaska-based novelist and commercial fisherman Brendan Jones in his viewpoint that Senator Lisa Murkowski, despite MAGA efforts against her, may have a chance of surviving politically in this very survivalist state. And also an important point there that ranked choice voting may favor Murkowski because if she's not the number one pick for some Democratic voters staying with the Democratic candidate, she'll likely be the number two choice ahead of other candidates. And Murkowski, while still caucusing with the GOP, she can be a de facto independent vote in Washington like a Joe Manchin or a Kristen Sinema on some issues. For example, she crossed the aisle to vote with Democrats on COVID relief, infrastructure, and background checks. Yeah, as Brendan Jones mentioned, Alaskans really value individualism, which explains on a broad level why independents and indie-minded candidates fare better there than most other states. Take Bill Walker, for instance, former independent governor of Alaska, now running again, who we've spoken to in the past. I remember I was sworn in on December 1st, I think. On December 8th, I was in the Oval Office with uh, President Obama and about four or five other governors that had just been elected on that um, that cycle, and uh, and President Obama looked at me. and said, "You're the you're the independent." I said, "I am." He says, "You're very fortunate to be that uh, to be that 
we all wish we could be that in some respect rather than all this partisan stuff and whatnot. So that was my first inkling that, you know, that there was something special about uh, being a nonpartisan. Special and incredibly rare. Out of 7,400 elected officials in the U.S. today, only about two dozen are pure independents without party affiliation. That's how much parties control our politics. So let's hear from one of those special few independent legislators in the U.S., Alaska House Representative Calvin Schrage, interviewed by Dylan Nichols. Uh, Yeah, so I uh, ran two years ago and uh, now represent House District 25, which is becoming House District 12 through redistricting. I mean, I bought the family home in 2017 that I grew up in. I'm doing home repairs on the holes that my brothers and I put in the wall and all that sort of thing. I learned to ride my bike just uh, right here in the neighborhood, went to local schools, um, Abbott Loop Elementary and Service High School and, and stayed in state for college. In season one, we spoke to a guest, uh, State House Rep. Laura Sibelia. Uh, she's from Vermont. She's also an independent and in a pretty similar position to you. We'd love to play you that clip. I don't have a platform. In fact, it, I, like I basically refuse to have a platform. Like um, there are issues that I'm going to put forward from my constituents. There are issues, you know, when other people put forward issues and that we have to vote on them, my platform is... I'm going to look at that and understand it and, you know, ask all kinds of questions and, you know, then vote the way that I think is best. You know, what she said really resonates in a lot of ways. I mean, what what she said about taking things issue by issue is is 100% on brand with the way I approach things in the legislature. At the same time, you know, I will say that my community expects me to advocate on some issues. You know, I, my community really expects me to advocate on education. You know, I like I said, I grew up in my district. Abbott Loop Elementary is the school I went to. My wife and I, we're trying to start a family right now. And if I send my kids to Abbott Loop Elementary today, they're going to get a worse education than they got 25 years ago. And I will say that although I don't have the party infrastructure behind me because I'm a nonpartisan, what I can do is I can build coalitions and I can say, I'm an education advocate. And you guys, our platforms align on this. You're education advocates. Let's work together. I can add a vote add my voice, add some rationale and some reason in my personal experience, my lived experience in my district, and you can add your party infrastructure and some of that research and those assets to help really move the ball on this issue. One issue that seems to me to be a driving factor in Alaska politics and behind some of the proposed cuts in the last few years for the different services you're talking about is the permanent fund dividend. A lot of folks, especially Republicans, have campaigned on expanding that dividend, which is hugely impactful to Alaskans, puts more money directly in their pockets. It started in 1976 as a fairly bipartisan effort, but since then, Democrats have adopted a climate agenda, and they also support different social services that land on the chopping block, the larger the PFD payment gets. Has this become more of a partisan issue these days, and how does that affect your work in the state house? I think that uh, it has become one, but it shouldn't be one. Much of our success in Alaska is is the result of oil revenue and funds from the federal government, frankly. And in recent years, we have seen that the only replacement for oil revenue that comes close to being able to meet the needs of the state of Alaska is the investment earnings that comes off the permanent fund, which, go back 40 years, was created as a result of oil revenues, oil revenues that were saved for the future for that permanent fund. I think that 
in politics, it, things are always e- easier when you have cover, when you have a team that's voting with you. And I think that the difficult decisions around the dividend have forced people to find cover and forced people into very tight teams. And it's become very partisan. And those teams have happened to fall along political lines, because I think that's naturally where we see those team allegiances come from. But it, it shouldn't be a partisan issue, because the ramifications of the choices we make will affect all of us, regardless of party, forever in Alaska. And if we damage that fund, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, or you want a big dividend or a small dividend, or you want lots of state services or no state services, those things will be impacted severely. And you you won't be able to do any of it. Um, There'll be no dividend, no state services, nothing, frankly, at least not on a level comparable to today, if we destroy that fund. This year, Alaskans will cast their votes in a new open primary and ranked choice voting system. We're speaking before Alaska's primary on August 16th, but have you seen any impact in the way candidates are campaigning as a result of the ballot measure? And what kind of long-term impact do you think this could have on partisanship and polarization in the state? It's hard to extrapolate out what the long-term impact is going to be. We've had hiccups. I think we've also had some already positive results from it. I think there's, speaking of hiccups, I think there's some confusion. I think that, you know, we, we I know that we have candidates out there saying, you know, just rank one, don't rank the other candidates, which if you look at ranked choice voting, you know that that's a bad strategy that actually disadvantages your own voters and their ability to influence the outcome of the election. I think, There are some gains, though. I mean, we're about to have a primary. I can tell you for a fact today that in just about every one of the races, we're not going to see good centrist candidates knocked out in a hyperpartisan primary because we did pass this voter initiative two years ago. Frankly, I think this is probably the way forward. I mean, I look at the primary results that are, are just starting to come out from this year's primaries in the lower 48, and you see the exact same problems we've been talking about with primaries. These hyperpartisan folks who run to the extreme to get the votes of a very small minority of voters to then have the rest of the voters have to choose from two extreme candidates on the general election ballot, of which neither really represents the majority of voters. That's a problem. We just spoke with Calvin Schrage, independent legislator from Alaska Statehouse. He thinks there's the possibility that Final Four voting can help moderate polarizing primaries in Alaska this election, and possibly in other states that may eventually adopt this reform. And the new voting system will certainly be under a lot of scrutiny. Former Governor Bill Walker speculated with us on this shortly after ballot measure two was passed back in 2020. The country is watching us a bit to see how this fares, because others, um, Maine has something similar and other states have something similar. Washington has a top to runoff. So there's some dabbling around the country and other methods of the election process. So I think that there's going to be a lot of focus on Alaska to see if there's a proof of concept on this method. And again, it's not so much who gets elected, but what they do after they get elected. To get a clearer picture on Final Four voting, I interviewed Liz Ruskin of Alaska Public Media. She really understands the system and how it combines open primaries with ranked choice voting. That's awesome, Dylan, because we all really need some help with this. So let's get into it then with Liz Ruskin on Final Four voting and also the campaign dynamics she's observed so far. 
Right. One of the biggest changes that, you know, as it kind of, it didn't seem that way at the time, but one of the biggest changes is that we went to a nonpartisan, you know, jungle primary, or as they're calling it here, the tundra primary. All the attention was focused on what happens in the general, which is ranked choice voting. So our new primary is everybody on the same ballot and the top four advance to the general. And then in the general, um, voters can rank candidates, one, two, three, and four. And if no one gets 50% in the first round, then the fourth place finisher is removed and those ballots are reallocated according to the voters' second choice. And that might happen another round until we get to two people and then the candidate with the most votes wins. And we're finding some just really unusual scenarios that we weren't anticipating. And that is that, you know, Democrats and liberals were generally more favorable to ranked choice voting than conservatives. And yet we are finding that uh, we've got two conservatives on the ballot and one Democrat, two Republicans and one Democrat. And what we're finding is that the Democrats are just really reluctant to rank one or the other their number two. Like they know they want the Democrat for their number one, and they just cannot bring themselves as even people who say, look, I supported ranked choice voting, but here, why should I give my vote to one of these conservatives that I don't like either one of them? And it really feels like we're asking them to part with some some small part of their soul to rank one of the conservatives their number two. The conservatives, you may have heard of one of them. Her name is Sarah Palin. And the other is named Nick Begich. And uh, the Begich family is very well known here, except that all the other Begiches that are known are Democrats. Yeah. And um, earlier in the race, actually right after the special primary in June to determine who was going to fill Don Young's seat for the remainder of his term, Al Gross, who had a lot of success being an independent candidate in that race and got 12% of that vote, I believe, he ended up dropping out. So now going into the primary that will uh, help decide which four candidates advance in the general election, is it clear at all where his vote will go, where that 12% will gravitate in terms of the candidates? Will it disperse among the top three candidates we have so far, Begich, Palin, and Peltola, or is there another independent candidate that independents are likely to coalesce around? You know, one of the things that we've found is that party labels mean so much less now. Um, it's really just kind of branding. And he had chosen the independent label, but he was very much aligned with the Democrats when he ran for U.S. Senate two years ago. So I, it would seem that Mary Peltola would pick up most of that, most of the gross vote. She's a very moderate Democrat. So on August 16th, we'll enter the ranked choice voting portion of the special congressional election to serve the remainder of Don Young's term. You're saying it seems likely that most of Al Gross's votes will go to Mary Peltola. So what kind of dynamic can we expect to see between Palin, Begich, and Peltola as the ranked choice voting rounds progress? So the Democrat is likely to come on top after the first round of counting because 
she's likely to get about 40% of the vote because liberals, you know, Democrats tend to pick up that much. And then the two conservatives will likely split the 60%. So it'll be, you know, 30, 30, and 40 or something along those lines. And then they're not going to implement the ranked choice part of it until all the ballots arrive by mail, and there's 15 days where that can happen. So ballots will continue to arrive at the division of elections for 15 days. And during those 15 days, you know, conservatives who didn't like ranked choice voting will find themselves in the surprising position of saying, yeah, yeah, I know it looks like the Democrat won, but just wait until those second ballots kick in. The two conservatives, you know, they've recognized that what they really have to do is beat the other conservative. You know, the game number one has to be for them, I don't want to finish third. And so there's been a bit of nastiness between the two candidates that are most similar to each other. But in Sarah Palin's case, you know, it is likely that a lot of people are just going to vote for one. A lot of the conservatives that I'm hearing from are saying, I'm not going for this ranked choice voting. I'm just going to vote for one, which they're calling bullet voting. I don't know where that term exactly came from, but bullet voting, just voting for one. And, well, if everyone did that, I don't, you know, it's it's likely the Democrat would win. So looking at the Senate race then through this ranked choice voting lens, Alaskans are deciding whether incumbent Republican Lisa Murkowski gets to keep her Senate seat. And some recent polling has shown that Murkowski trails the Trump-endorsed Kelly Chewbacca by about eight or nine points. They were both followed in a recent poll by Democrat Pat Chesborough. Is it a similar dynamic to the congressional campaign in that the Republicans are sort of duking it out to prove to voters who's the most Republican? Is anyone trying to court moderates in that campaign? How does that look? Well, you know, what I'm really finding is that a lot of uh, uh, Democrats and liberals in Alaska are saying, why don't we just vote for Murkowski since that's who's more realistic. They're kind of weighing what does that mean in ranked choice voting. And some are saying it doesn't matter. Just vote the Democrat because you're a Democrat and you want to support Democrats. Vote the Democrat one and Murkowski two. And other folks are saying, no, just vote Murkowski one because we don't want to undermine the faith in the results of the election. And also... If Murkowski were to win 50% plus one vote in the first round of voting, there would be no ranked choice. She would just win. That was Liz Ruskin from Alaska Public Media. She's explaining some of the dynamics she's seen so far in this first ever Final Four voting election campaign in Alaska. Dylan, what were your major takeaways from these interviews? Well, my main takeaway is that there are a lot of questions we hope to answer on our next Alaska episode after the primary results are in. Like what will Final Four voting do for voter turnout, which is typically quite low for primaries? Will voters understand the process? And will that process help or hurt some of the more independent candidates like moderate GOP Senator Murkowski or Bill Walker running again as an independent candidate for governor? And like our guest Calvin Schrage, running for re-election as an independent member of the Alaska House. 
More to come then on Very Purple and Very Indie Alaska next time on The Purple Principle. Thanks to all our guests today and to Dylan for these great discussions. For those interested in the genesis of Final Four voting in Alaska, we suggest you listen back to our original 2020 episode with the campaign manager for that ballot measure, Shay Siegert. Its genesis was how are we going to provide the best election system to the Alaska voter? How are we going to provide Alaska voters with the most voice, the most choice, and the most power? And we found that open primaries and ranked choice voting and financial disclosure was that way. For more detail on how Alaskans are voting this election, check out our explanatory cartoon created by digital guru Emily Holloway. You can find that on the page for this episode at purpleprinciple.com or click the link in our show notes. And note that a very close cousin of Alaska's Final Four voting called Final Five voting will be a ballot measure in Nevada in November. We'll be watching to see what effects are felt there from Alaska's attempt to depolarize our elections. Special thanks to all our Alaska guests this episode and to Dylan Nichols for some great reporting. This is Robert Pease for the whole Purple Principle team. Original music by Ryan Adair Rooney. The Purple Principle is a Fluent Knowledge production.